Well, welcome. It is uh, good to be with you again this morning. Um, want to uh, make a couple highlights about some things in the church life uh, as we transition to looking at the word this morning. First, uh, Caroline, is this your first Sunday back since you got married? Yeah. yeah. Well, this is Caroline. It used to be Hogan. It's Caroline Hogan Blunt now. So, yes. And this is her husband, DeMonte. They were one of the many pandemic weddings we had connected to our church over the last couple of months. Um, and so excited to have you guys here with us this morning. Second, uh, this is Morgan Otts, last Sunday with us. Morgan leaves this Friday. She is going to pursue a counseling degree at RTS Orlando, my alma mater. Woohoo! No? Just. Yeah. I, we don't have a mascot, so I mean, there's nothing to do. Um, we, have a, we have an undefeated football team. Um, but she's going to go pursue that this, this, for the next couple of years. And so um, I'm actually going to take um, a moment to pray for, for Morgan and to send her off. Um, also, just want to let you know, uh, this will be my last time in the pulpit for about four weeks or so, as I'm going to take some time over the next couple of weeks between study and some vacation. But you'll be well taken care of pastorally between Andy and the elders. And Andy and Avery and Whittle and Weber will take care of you uh, with preaching. Let me pray, and then we're going to get to God's word. Join with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great joy it is to be your people, to be a people who are now called a holy priesthood, One people who were at one time called unholy are now called holy, and we are your set-aside ones, the saints that you have called to do ministry in this world. And so, Lord, thank you that we can gather together to remind each other of that, to bask in um, reflections of your glory for a season together, and then to go back out, Lord, seeking to be separate from the world, to be unique from the world so that we might be a salt and a light, while at the same time remaining in the world for the glory of your name. So, Lord, we pray um, for those in our church. In particular, we think of Morgan this morning as she, um, as we send her out uh, this week. I would pray, the Lord, that you would bless her and her labors, that the next couple of years, Lord, would um, be enormous and significant for training her for even more years of ministry. Lord, we thank you for her time uh, at this church and the way she faithfully served on the campus and in our church and the way we were able to serve her. And so, Lord, we send her out with our blessing, asking that, Lord, you would carry on to completion the good work that you've started in her. And that along the way, that because of the ways that you've gifted her and shaped her and trained her in the coming years, more people would join the great procession towards heaven. That they would be set free, perhaps if she's called to be a counselor, set free from the bondage of sin and brokenness to follow you with greater abundance and joy. But we all, we all want that. And so I, I just pray that we as a people would experience that more deeply greater freedom and abundance and joy in Jesus so that we, Lord, would evangelize and tell other people about Jesus because we can't help but speak. So, Lord, we labor and continue to labor in your name and now be with us and be with me as I labor for these moments for the glory of your name. Lord, this um, is a high and holy calling and it is above me. So, Lord, if it is above me, we need your spirit to come down and to do your work where I am lacking. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, we're in Psalm 99 this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. 
Psalm 99, as we continue our look uh, through the Psalms or in various Psalms this summer, a series we're calling a singing theology is we try to look up that while there's so much going on around us that we seek to be a people whose eyes are consistently lifted up. Um, where does my help come from? It comes from the hills. That's where my Lord is. And so we lift up our eyes to the mountain of God's glory. So we, we pick up this morning now at Psalm 99. Again, looking at this theme of the holiness of God as Ed has already walked us through in our order of worship. Pick it up in verse 1. We'll read the whole psalm. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord, our God, is holy. This is the reading of God's word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God, may it stand forever. We're going to play a game. It's called You Play the Preacher. You know, sometimes the application in a passage is not easy to see. It can be kind of a challenge if you're looking through. It's like, okay, how am I supposed to apply this to my life? What's the, what's the call of this passage as to how I'm supposed to live? Sometimes it's hard, and sometimes it's not. This is one of those times where it should be quite easy. So let me ask you guys. You play the preacher. What is the imperative? What is the call of the passage? Oh, so maybe it's not so easy. So be loud. I heard Mike Mason. Mike Mason, give, give it to me, brother. Yeah, let them praise your great name. Yes, praise him. Praise him. Worship him. This is the key and the call of this passage. The call of Psalm 99 is simply this. Worship the Lord. Verse 3, let them praise your great and awesome name. Verse 5, exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Verse, 10, verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. So here's the call. You've already done it. Wasn't that nice to have a sermon where you've already done what they're telling you to do? You've already done it this morning, but your whole life is to be an extension of what we do this morning, a worship to the Lord. Worship your great God. And what is the driving force in God, within God and his character, that elicits worship or this call to worship in this passage? We've already sung about it this morning. Well, it is none other than the attribute that is given more prominence in the whole of scriptures than any other attribute of God's. We see holiness, the holiness of God is repeated three times in this passage. Those three three verses. Verse three, again, it says, let them praise your great and awesome name. And says, holy is he. Verse five, exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Verse nine, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. Why? For the Lord our God is holy. 
Spurgeon says that Psalm 99, he, he said we could be entitled simply the holy, holy, holy psalm. And that is appropriate because it's thrice repeated in the psalm. And it's also connected to the most famous passage, which Ed mentioned this morning on the holiness of God, which is Isaiah 6. Where the angels say there, the seraphim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, when biblical writers want to seek to highlight a word, they didn't have Microsoft Word back then where they could bold, italic, underline, enlarge a word. So in order to highlight something and give it emphasis and weight, they have to repeat it. And there's other places in the scriptures where we see this happen. For example, in Isaiah 26, it says, the Lord will keep you in perfect peace is the way we translate it. But literally in the Hebrew, it is the Lord will keep you in peace, peace. Peace, peace, peace. Or Jesus says when he teaches all the time, he says, truly, truly, that means, hey, listen, 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 listen to this. Well, there's only one description of God that is used given the three times superlative in the scriptures. And it is the holiness of God. R.C. Sproul said this, only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy, but that he is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say, though, that he is holy, 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 and that the whole earth is full of his glory. If this attribute, it is this attribute that he actually gives the full force to all the other attributes of God that we're going to look at in this series, and all the other attributes of God that you come to know and love. For example, you, love, you like God's love. Well, he is a holy love. He has a holy power. He has a holy mercy. In fact, God's name is qualified. The name, the Lord God, is qualified or described with the adjective holy more than all other qualifiers that can be used in the scriptures combined. He wants you to know he is holy. Do you know the holiness of God? Have you experienced the holiness of God? Is the holiness of God even something for which you actually take time to praise the Lord for. When you think of your God, does the word holy come to mind first? One of the most famous quotes of the last uh, century was by a guy named, in the Christian world, was a guy by a guy named A.W. Tozer who said this, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And what would be the first thing that comes to mind when you think about God? Is there even a right answer to that question? Well, I think the Bible makes it pretty clear that the, the, the primary, the, the principal, the premier attribute of God should be his holiness. Jen Wilkin, who's a well-known Bible teacher now, writes great curriculum for helping women understand, better, become better studiers of the word of God, says this, I am no expert on angelic beings. She's referring to Isaiah 6. But it seems like the first thing that comes to mind when angels think about God is revealed in the one thing that they repeat without ceasing. He is holy. And so this morning, we're going to give ourselves over to the study of the holiness of God that is found both here in Psalm 99 and in Isaiah 6. I want you to see three things. If you're going to come to understand and appreciate and value the holiness of God in such a way that it would lead you to have a heart and a life of worship. Three explanations this morning about the holiness of God. First, the holiness of God is his separate position. 
separate position, or we could say his special position. We see this in the first three verses of Psalm 99. It says this, Lord reigns. That means he is on a throne. He is above us. We go down here, he goes up here. The people trembles. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great. We are not. He is great. We are small. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. What is being emphasized in the first three verses is what we might call holiness proper. The most general definition of what holiness is. We, we tend to go very quickly to the idea of God's holiness as being referring to his moral purity. And we will get there next. But first we have to understand what holiness means more generally. The foundational and general understanding of what holiness is, it means that God is separate from us. He is unique from us. He is special and beyond us. The Hebrew word for, the, for holy is the word kadosh, which is kind of fun to say. Kadosh. You just walk around this afternoon saying it over and over, and you sound holy when things were end with osh. Kadosh, which means to cut off or to be separate. It says that God is holy other. He is cut off from us. He is different from us. We might say that he is transcendent from us. And the separateness of God is emphasized throughout the, the scriptures in connection to the God's holiness. For example, in Exodus chapter 15, the first worship song in the Bible, it says this, Who is like you, O Lord? It's a rhetorical question. No one is. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Holiness means that there is an incomparability to God. God is unique. Isaiah 40, verses 21 and 22 and verse 25. Do you not know? How do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. That's us. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Verse 25. To whom then, the Lord says, will you compare me? You can't. The righteousness of God is literally his, the rightness of God. That there is nothing wrong with him. He is perfect and pure. He is right in everything that he does. And the justice of God refers both to God establishing a law for his people that extends from his intrinsic holy nature, what we, which what we might call his legislative justice. In other words, all the laws that God gives us are morally perfect. Whereas many of the laws that we make as man are immoral. So it's legislative justice, and Paul will call that in Romans 12, holy. That God will not just do that, though. He will then carry out justice, what is called distributive justice. It refers to the fact that he rightly rewards those who do good, and he punishes those who do wrong. This is God's holy rightness, his holy perfection in action. And where does the psalmist say, you will encounter this holy, righteous, and holy, just God? Where do you worship him, it says? An odd place, a footstool. Verse 5, exalt the Lord your God, worship at his footstool. Now, this seems like an odd place to encounter a just and righteous God. Like, to our ear, that would be like asking your grandmother, hey, how do I get a sense of the character of my father? And she goes, you want to get a sense of your character of your father? Go look at the lazy boy chair. That's who your father, grandfather is. But that's not what's going on here. What is being stated here is the footstool of God was actually a reference to the Ark of the Covenant of God. And the Ark of the Covenant of God was a place where there's two cherubim or seraphim, two angels. 
And above it is supposed to be his throne, and the ark itself is referred to as essentially his footstool. The footstool of God. It says this in 1 Chronicles 28, 2, to establish the scripture. Then David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for their footstool of our gods. And so I made preparations for a building. This is referring to the temple. That the Ark of the Covenant there is connected to the footstool of God. The Ark was a box about a yard long and a foot and a half wide and deep. It was covered with gold. And in the middle of it was what's called the mercy seat. On the other end has got two figures, two cherubim. And between those wings was God was understood to dwell. And the box contained what? Do you know what the box of the Ark of the Covenant contained? The law of God. The holy purity of God put into earthly terms and put on stone tablets. And by the way, all these features fit the psalm, by the way. The enthronement between the cherubim fits one through three, God's positional holiness. And then the reminder of the law, which the ark contained, fits God's just and equitable rule that we see in verses four and five of Psalm 99. The footstool, this ark of the covenant, was kept where in the temple, do you know? In the most holy place. And no one could approach except for a high priest after a week of ritual cleansing and then taking, doing sacrifices on the Day of Atonement to cover over the sins of the people. And then he could approach the ark. And even then, they would do what? To ensure that they could get his carcass out. They would tie a rope around his ankle just in case the holiness of God would destroy this guy. And so now we have in the scriptures, this is the view, what's in view, what's being pictured here in Psalm 99. But we give an even more profound picture of the same exact scene in Isaiah 6. We already read it this morning, but I'm going to read it again. Here's what it says there. This is literally, this is a vision of what is going on and being described in the poem of Psalm 99 is being lived out in a vision in Isaiah's life. It says this, and I, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, positional holiness. And the train of his road filled the temple above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. In other words, what is going on here in Isaiah 6 is Isaiah is being a, be given a vision in which the cherubs that are on the Ark of the Covenant have come alive. And now in this vision, he is seeing them fly around with their six wings with the swooshing power that comes from these angelic beings, and they are singing this song. And so Isaiah is coming face to face with the majestic holiness of God and the God of perfect righteousness and perfect justice who will bring his justice to bear upon those who do not live up to his holy standards. And what is the response of Isaiah? It begins with one word, woe. Woe, I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, Isaiah understands that God is not simply high and exalted, but that the Lord is morally pure, and a morally pure God cannot be in the sight and abide with those who are sinners. One writer puts it this way, 
God possesses a holiness so blinding that we cannot look upon him and live. A moral purity so devastating that even the sinless angelic beings that inhabit his immediate presence cannot bear to look upon him. Do you understand that? Angels are sinless. And yet even in their sinlessness, they cannot bear to look upon the holy perfection of this God. Consider with me the words of Isaiah and what is going on for him at a deep, intimate soul level. If you're going to understand this and being brought to worship, we have to get inside what is going on in Isaiah's heart and mind. He begins this way, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. Now consider who Isaiah is. What is his vocation? He is a, he's a preacher. He is a prophet. And what is it that is found to be unclean? Remember, I understand this. Remember, this is chapter 6. Isaiah has been preaching for quite some time. An honest reader would ask this question, why does Isaiah just now have this encounter with God? He's going to get commissioned after this encounter. God's going to say, I'm going to send you out. I'm going to make you my prophets. This is like the inauguration of Isaiah's calling, but he's already been preaching for five chapters. What he has done is he's been a preacher, he's been a prophet, and he has been, what has he been doing? What do prophets do? They bring the law and they bring it and they apply it to the life of the people of Israel. In other words, they're preacher lawyers. And they come in and they tell the people of Israel how they are not living up to the standard of God's law. In other words, Isaiah for the first five chapters has been pronouncing woe. Woe upon you, and upon you, and upon you for not keeping God's law, for being an unclean people. You don't honor God. You don't seek justice. Woe to you. Curse you. And, but when he encounters God, now where is the woe directed? Woe. The very thing for which he calls others out now, he finds that he is also guilty of. And he hears his own voice now directing the word woe directly back at himself. And so he says, not only woe, but he says, I am lost. Literally in the Hebrews, it means, in the Hebrew, it is, I am undone. What is going on existentially for Isaiah? This idea of who he is in light and before a holy God, it shatters him. What he is seeing about himself is ripping him apart. Every time someone in the Bible encounters God, it is like they are hit with a wrecking ball. It destroys their life and their view of themselves. For example, Job, who is called the most righteous man in the land, when he sees a glimpse of God, says, My eyes have now seen you, and I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. This is the best man. In the world, this is how he responds. Manoah in Judges, when he and his wife get a glimpse of God, he says this, wife, we need to prepare to die. (laughs) Have you ever felt like that? Perhaps you've never had an experience of the holiness of God. When it feels like the character of God and who he is and all of his greatness is dismantling your life and everything you thought about yourself. Because he goes on to say this, and it's actually for a specific reason that he feels undone. And it's going to drive this to a point for us. He says, for I am a man of unclean lips. I am unclean, which is the same word for leprosy. In other words, Isaiah looks at his lips and he sees moral leprosy. But where does he feel unclean? His lips. His lips. You see, he is being torn apart of his very identity. You see, lips for a preacher are like like a right arm for a quarterback, or critical thinking for an attorney. And so what's, what's being attacked here? 
the best part of himself. The thing that he thought made, set him apart in the world, the thing that he thought made him holy, the thing that he thought made him righteous, because he is a preacher, he is a prophet. You see, the holiness of God has revealed the uncleanliness of his lips, and the most commendable aspect of who Isaiah is is now found to be unclean. In other words, this is the difference, what we are finding here. If you want to run smack dab into a heart of worship for the holiness of God is you must come to the place of understanding the difference between religious repenting and true Christian repenting. Many religious people confess their sins. Did you know that? Many people who don't know Jesus confess their sins. Every religion of the world. In fact, everyone who has done something wrong and feels bad about it, unless they are a sociopathic, feels remorse over their sins. It is not distinctly Christian to say that you're a sinner and that you've done something wrong. That is not the height of Christian repentance, to simply feel bad about things. This is simply what religion says to do. But Isaiah experiences, and here exposes Isaiah's utter inability of being able to offer any righteousness to God. In other words, the reason Isaiah is coming undone is because the glue of his life, that which he looked to and said, this is the thing that holds my life together. This is my righteousness. This is what makes me right before God. It is that part of him is being melted by the consuming fire of God's holiness. In other words, Christian repentance is not simply when you start repenting of your sins. It's when you start repenting of all that you think makes you good. When you think that which you look to to make you holy. You see, here's the difference. And the reason why we often feel like our life is put together is because we live our lives primarily living in comparison to other people. And so we can always find somebody who's a little bit less righteous than us. Who doesn't quite have as much skill as us. How we see our beauty is in comparison to the beauty of others. How we see our intelligence is in comparison to others. But what happens when you come up against one who is far greater than you? Think of an earthly example of this. I remember beginning to play on a travel all-star basketball team in my teenage years, and it was a clearly different level that I moved into. And by different level, I mean literally physics was different. The, the, the game, they have the difference between what they call the game under the hoop and the game over the hoop. And this move that I made, suddenly the game was now played at a higher level. And I went, oh no. I had come into contact with a holiness, a skill that was greater than mine. And we can live in utter delusion of who we are and our righteousness and our competency by simply comparing our best version to the worst version of others. But that pattern of living comes crashing down when suddenly you are brought face to face with the ultimate comparison, an objective category known as the holy presence of God. And it is crushing. And so when that happens, when we get exposed in that way, when the glue of your life is melted away, you know what it feels like? Like your life is coming undone. You see, you understand the image there of glue? Everybody has a glue. The things that hold your bones, your rickety old righteous bones together, that holds your life, gives it center, but Isaiah's glue is melting away, and so he feels as if he's just simply gonna be a puddle of old bones on the floor. 
And even though he professed faith in God, something else was at the center of his life, even that which he was his self-worth, and now his self-identity is being consumed and thrown away. How do you know you've encountered the holiness of God? Because it brings with it a devastating self-awareness. A devastating self-awareness. The words holy, 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 and the question, uh, who am I, go together in the Bible. Holy, 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 and who am I, with grief and anguish. And know this, though, this is the path to true worship. You must go through the fire to experience the joy of true worship. I wish it wasn't so for us, but it is so. There are no ins arounds. There are no cheats. There are no skip this section of the Christian life to experience real heart worship. You must encounter the holiness of God and experience the ungluing that comes from that. And the reason why this is true, because unless the old glue of your self-righteousness gets melted away by the holiness of God, then you will never, never encounter the grace of God as the new glue that holds your life together. And this is the third thing I want us to see about the holiness of God if we're going to be led to worship. The holiness of God is his forgiving presence. We pick up in verse 6 in Psalm 99. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. Who is this God? Remember, real quickly, who is he? He is high and above us. He is positionally separate from us. And now suddenly he is in such a way that close to us enough that he can answer us. He answered them. In the pillar of cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them and you were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord, our God, is holy. Notice in Psalm 99 that the very last phrase has changed from holy is he in verses three and five to now holy is our God. He went from far and away, distant from me. Suddenly he is possessed by me and me by him. How does the holy God become our God since we are not holy? We are exposed. He is just and we are not. He is righteous and we are not. How can a holy God now be in our presence and we not be destroyed by it? The answer in verse 8 is this. O Lord our God, you answered them and you are a forgiving God to them but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Do you see what the psalmist says here that God does? God will forgive. God will cleanse my sin. Yet he will also avenge my sin. Now, how does that happen? If he avenges my sin, then I am destroyed in the presence of his holiness. But if he cleanses my sin without dealing rightly with his wrath, then he is not just. So how can he wash me clean How can he wash away my sins and also do justice with my sins? God must figure out how to uphold the holiness of his justice and righteousness and yet not destroy me, but how? Now we look back now to the picture, our illustration in Isaiah 6. Look what happens in order to help us understand this. To answer this question, look where we are in verse going into verse 6. Isaiah is ashamed and exposed, and then it says this. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now, 
Where does it say that the angel gets the burning coal? The what? The altar. And what did they do on altars? They sacrificed lambs for the sins of people. The altar is the place of sacrifice, the place where the lamb was slaughtered and his blood was placed in the altar to burn before the Lord. A sacrifice for Isaiah's sin was made. In other words, God's wrath was not poured out on Isaiah, it was poured out on the lamb. And then the very thing, the very place from which that place of wrath, that burning coal was taken out of that sacrificial place and it was from there that Isaiah is now cleansed. In other words, the wrath of God is still there. God's holy justice is carried out on the lamb. And Isaiah is cleansed so that he might live in the presence of God. A sacrifice for Isaiah's sin is made. Wrath is poured out. And so because of that, this smoke, coal smoking with the remnant of burnt sacrificial blood, that angel takes it and he touches where on Isaiah? His lips. The very place where Isaiah now feels the most unclean, the place of exposure where he feels undone, the place where he most wants to hide, the place of his broken pride, God says, I will make that new. I will bring my cleansing power there. And don't you know there was another day in the temple, another day in the temple where the door to see the footstool, the Ark of the Covenant of God, where that door was ripped in two, and now everyone has access. And there was a moment when it was ripped in two in which what happened? The earth shook because the holy wrath of God came down. And in that moment, a man who was a lamb came undone. But it was not you, and it was not me. And it was not Isaiah. In Matthew 27, it says that darkness came over the land and the curtain was torn and the earth shook and Jesus said, it is finished. God in Christ became the sacrifice on the altar. The veil was ripped and the earth shook and Jesus, the Lamb of God, was undone by the holy wrath of God in our place so that we, though we might feel undone, and giving a taste of God's holiness in this life are actually now redone by being in the presence of God's holiness. And he can remake us. And here it is, this convergence, this collision of an experience in your heart is the secret of a heart that worships your God. It is the heart that has been undone by the holiness of God and then redone by the gift of God's forgiveness in Christ Jesus and the cleansing grace. It is that collision that brings us to worship. And I want to ask you today, has that happened in your life? Have you experienced this in your life, that collision of the holiness and the wrath of God with the grace of God? If you have not, it could be because you have not quite comprehended the holiness of God. It is the it is the requirement to feeling, feeling the full weight of the grace of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a great 20th century preacher, said this illustration. If someone tells you that they paid one of your bills, you have no, excited, no idea how excited to be until you know which bill they paid. Did they pay your library fine or did they pay your mortgage off? Until you know the size of the debt... And the difference between you and God, you don't know how grateful to be. You will never rest in the grace of God until the holiness of God exposes and melts away your self-righteousness. And perhaps this is why for so many of us, grace is merely a word. 
It is a Christian sentiment that we have said over and over again and not the reality that holds your life together. Perhaps today we are turned off by the talk of God's holiness and perhaps all we want to do is speak of God's love. But if you do so, you transform God's love into something that can never transform you. Because you actually need the real God, not some parsed out version of him that you like and you discard the rest that you don't like. If you only know the holiness of God, then you won't draw near to him. You can't draw near to him. You won't be able to dance in his presence and worship. But if you only know the love of God who never makes demands on your life, then you won't be filled with awe by the fact that he welcomes you into his presence. Because of this, there is grace. Because of love, there is grace. Because of his holiness, his grace is costly. And so I ask again, have you been undone by God's holiness? And then awed by God's redoing of you by his grace. You see, Isaiah understands that the altar is the place where atonement for sins is made. He already knew that before this experience. Did you know that? He's a preacher. He says, Israelites, if you sin, you know where you're supposed to go? You're supposed to make a sacrifice. You're supposed to make good. You're supposed to be an atonement for your sin. He has always known that, but now what happens? He's experienced the atonement himself. Now the burning coal hits his lips. You see, Isaiah has understood the altar is the place where the atonement for sins is made. Any good Jew would have understood that, but now it is his sinfulness that gets exposed. It is his lips that need cleansing, and it is his heart of self-righteousness that needs melting away. And the transforming moment in Isaiah's life is that, that what that makes this man a man of worship is when he experiences the holiness of God that does not merely expose him and reveal that which is unclean and melt away that which is fraudulent in his heart, but when the holiness of God covered his sin and cleansed his uncleanliness and replaces that which is a fraudulent righteousness in his heart with a righteousness that is a grade A gold bullion awesome righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is what he comes to realize. That is grace. And it is here. It is here where a a spirit-wrought collision in the heart of man of the two atoms known as the holiness of God and the grace of God make contact to create an explosion of what? Worship. Of worship. Man, Lord, make it so here. Let's pray. Lord, I can talk about your holiness until I'm, until I'm blue in the face. We can talk about grace, too, and the love of God, and we can go on with this series, and we can talk about all the attributes of who you are. But ultimately, Lord, what we need is your spirit that as we talk about these things and consider these things, the spirit of the living God would, would fall fresh on us. So if you're here this morning and you would actually like to taste, <laughs> this is a dangerous prayer. If you would be willing to pray a prayer that's asked the Lord to undo you with his holiness, would you ask him? Lord, there's, there, there is old glue in my life. 
and you have burnished parts of it from my soul, but Lord, I, I sense that there is so much more left. And Lord, because I want to experience the fullness of your love and your grace, would you do the painful work of melting me with your holiness? Spirit of the living God, I pray that you'd fall so that we might taste and see that you are holy and that you are good. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.